This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, brothers, this morning's lecture is called Holding Ourselves Up to the Golden Light. Once again, there'll be a full set of notes waiting for you after I've given the talk, so you don't have to worry too much about scribbling things down, unless you want to, because, of course, you know, that's a good practice for many people. So I'll start with a bit of autobiography. I definitely wasn't born upright. I had to work at it. There's no doubt about it. Um, So I'll give you a little bit of autobiography. Um, I was born in 1959 and my father was a forester and I grew up in the Lake District near Windermere in Cumbria, beautiful part of the world. But we were quite poor. My mother came from the Irish travelling community and uh, we we lived on a small holding. And um, when I was 14, I... um, my parents got quite a lot of money together. It was a big deal for them to pay for me to go on a school trip. This, in my community, this was quite a big thing, affording the money for a school trip. Anyway, I don't know how they did it, but they did it. And uh, I, I went to London for the first time at age 14. And I went on a coach with the school and the teachers and all the rest of it. And um, the main purpose was to go to the British Museum in London and it was a very very big deal for me and um, well something happened there which was really very very unexpected I just thought I wanted to see everything which of course you can't do in two days but on the second day uh, there we were in our school uniforms you know all running amok amongst all the you know the fascinating objects to look at and I encountered an enormous standing Amitabha Rupa You might have seen it. It's been there since 1938. And um, it's very, very big. It's much bigger than this Rupa, for instance. And there's a whole staircase built right right round it. And um, there and then, standing in my school uniform, I knew I was a Buddhist. It communicated something to me completely directly, straight into my heart. I knew all about this. I knew I'd encountered this before somewhere in my life. Um, And I remember distinctly Miss Forbes, the teacher, coming and getting hold of me and saying, Richard, we're going now, the coach is going. Could you please come? And I I don't know how long I stood there. Recently, uh, with my friend Aidan over there, we went and revisited it after 46 years. And uh, there I was, sort of doing my frustrations in front of this um, massive Rupert, which kicked things off for me. Um, And I was surrounded by Japanese school children and tourists and all sorts of things. It was all chaotic, as it was in my day, I expect. Uh, It was quite a moment, really. But what a wonderful thing, you know, the artistry of the craftsman that made that communicated the Dharma to me. I remember my parents saying, um, it's just a phase he's going through. (laughs) 
well, I'm 60 now and it's an awfully long face. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm still on the path. I'm 60 now. Um, so as you age, uh, you will find those of you who haven't aged much yet, you'll find that um, you've got a lot more memories to draw on, a lot more stories to tell, uh, you know, things to entertain people with. I've got a granddaughter now, so I'm kind of looking forward to giving her some of these stories in time. Um, but also what comes with age, you also, you also get regrets with age. Things you did, you can remember, which are actually quite a mistake. Things you could have done, but you didn't do. And since 2003, I've been, uh, well, for 16 years now, I've been regularly visiting India, the land of the Buddha, and working there for the Dharma in India. And it's been a wonderful time for me. Um, in 2006 in Cambridge, Bhante once, he said to me, if you visit the Indian Sangha, you will get more than you give. You will get more than you give. And he, he was absolutely right. I mean, I've given quite a bit, but uh, I've gained so much, so much in my life. I really have. And that continues to be the case, and will continue to be the case, I think. Nonetheless, um, amongst all the happy memories and the satisfaction that I've had in, in, in working there, um, I've still got a few regrets, actually, about my time in India. Things I could have done better. Mistakes I've made. I've certainly made a few. There was a song about that, wasn't there? And, um, and there's been opportunities missed as well. I've missed a few. And I think the main one, the main regret I've got, is missing the monsoon, the rainy season. I've never been in India during the rainy season, and I should have been, because um, I've been going there for long enough. It's a very, very beautiful period, the rainy season. You know, you kind of think, well, all that rain, that's not very good, is it? That's like Manchester or something. No, it isn't. It's nothing like Manchester, I can tell you, or London or anywhere like that. It's quite different. Um, all these wonderful flowers, flora and fauna emerge during the monsoon. And because right up to the monsoon, things have been very, very hot, very, very arid. Everywhere is parched. It's baking parched. And suddenly the monsoon came and everything is refreshed and people are happy and the rain is there. The monsoon is just um, plying itself on, on everyone. Yeah, and um, I would really have loved to have seen that. I've always been there in the dry season and now, you know, my rheumatoid arthritis conditions got a lot worse and I can't go during the monsoon. Um, sufferers like me with this condition we need to avoid getting wet getting damp getting cold we have to avoid that so i won't be going during that time and that's a regret i must say i think i really would have loved to have seen it because um, i think it's true to say that the weather in india deeply influences its culture and i do love indian culture i must say um, and the monsoon the rainy season is a huge part of this uh, the culture. It's a three month plus period and uh, where an Indian life completely changes during that period. There's obviously an awful lot of rain 
And, and when it rains, I mean, it seriously rains. It's just coming down in stair rods all day long. Then you get a little bit of a break and then you get more. Um, a normal life can't continue. Sometimes it's, it's up to your waist in water in the streets. And uh, in Calcutta, they, uh, the, the king of the road during that period is the hand-pulled rickshaw carts. They're the only thing that can move during that time. Nothing else can move. Um, so normal life can't continue. And um, getting about is really, really difficult. And people go inward in their lives, into their families, into their work, and of course, into their spiritual lives very much. So spiritual life changes during the monsoon. And that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And it was very much the case during the time of the Buddha. As you know, the Buddha wandered around northern India with his disciples um, for hundreds and hundreds of miles. It was a vast area, northern India. And he, he wandered around approximately the size of, of the UK. So you can imagine wandering around somewhere as big as the UK. That's the kind of area that the Buddha covered. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it, really, that he did that? Sometimes with up to, well, sometimes with thousands of disciples with him at a particular time. Like we might go for a walk around Serlingham Village with a friend. There's two of us, that's, that's okay. But imagine going with thousands. You know, it's, it's quite, quite a thing, really, but that's what they did. They went from place to place, living on arms. I mean, you think living on arms, that must have been like a military operation, just getting the arms for all those people. He was teaching, he was practicing, he was developing the Sangha. Uh, but during the rainy season, that all changed. Uh, you couldn't get about. If they tried to go out in the rainy, rainy season, they'd be immediately soaked to the skin. There was so much mud that just be slipping about, they wouldn't be able to walk very far. Don't forget there were no proper roads in those days. So the Buddha and his disciples would spend their time on retreat for three or four months, mainly in this area called Shravasti, which uh, I've been to with Tridhakarin, and the monastery is still there. Anathapindakas Park is still there, and it's a park. And you pay your money and you go in. And it's a beautiful place. It's still there. In fact, the Buddha's kuti, the Gandakuti, the, uh, the foundations of it are still there. And you can go and make your um, obeisance to the Gandakuti. It's all still there. But first of all, there were wooden huts. They just sat out the rains. They, they, they lived in wooden huts for three, four months. But along came an Pindaka and built them kind of what there was effectively a monastery. And um, so eventually monasteries built up around the area. Purpose-built brick monasteries, travesty. Um, and the rainy season was an opportunity for the monks to go into their meditation practice. So we've done a bit of meditation on this retreat so far. That's really good. Uh, we're doing that. But during the, the, the monsoon period, the monks would have seriously meditated I mean, a lot of the day, uh, really going in into their practice in, in depth. But that's not all they did. Uh, they also, they get together in groups and they chant what they knew of the teachings. 
so that what we've got now in the scriptures was what they chanted and remembered of the Buddha's teaching. They would chant it and commit it to memory. Because don't forget, there wasn't any writing in those days. Or if there was, it certainly wouldn't be used for something like the spiritual life. They also spent time washing, dyeing and mending robes, um, the historians tell us. They, they basically did housework of different kinds and maintained things. And at the end of the monsoon, when the rains were over, uh, they'd set off on their wanderings again, often in twos or threes, sometimes in much bigger groups, and they wandered all over northern India. Sometimes they wandered for days and days without seeing any other monks. But twice a month, I don't know how they did this, but twice a month, on the night of the full moon, on, on the night of the new moon, they all got together. The monks that were in a particular area, they would know where they should meet, and they all met up. And uh, they'd gather together, they'd meditate. Sometimes they'd be up to a thousand, especially if the Buddha was there with them. You know, they'd, they'd be a big turnout, as it were, a bit like a kind of national gathering, really, only a, a lot bigger than that. Um, so they get together in forest clearings in the light of the full moon and they chant together summary verses of the Buddha's teaching and they'd reflect and meditate on the teachings. And as far as historians can tell, this is what happened throughout the whole of the Buddha's life, lifetime. But after the Parinirvana, things changed. The bhikkhus continued to meet um, on the same two nights that they'd always done, but they no longer chanted or meditated together. Somehow that all, the culture changed. And instead of that, they used to practice confession. Um, the spiritual practice of confession. <laughs> what they did was they get together in twos. So often preceptors and preceptees would get together in twos. That's often how it worked. And the, the, usually one of the monks would be appointed to chant out the monastic code out loud to everyone. So it was all being chanted away, just to remind anybody who'd forgotten the Vinaya. And, and then they would confess in pairs offences that had occurred during the period since they'd last met. Usually the preceptor went first, the or the senior monk would go first and confess to the junior monk, and then vice versa, that's how it worked. And this kind of confessional meeting is still held in many parts of the Buddhist today, especially in Shravakayana Buddhism. In fact, Bhante himself did it as a young monk um, in India, when he was a young monk, but he found it uh, disappointing, disappointingly ineffective. Um, it had become formalized, and the, they would squat down on their haunches, and then the monks would just sort of chant all this stuff, which was supposed to be a confession, but was really confessional verses without a lot of meaning to it. And he was very disappointed with that, really. However, Bhante was lucky because he had a teacher, Jagdish Kashyap, and uh, that was where Bhante learned another kind of confession, uh, which is where the junior partner confesses to the senior partner on a one-to-one -one basis. So you've got a teacher, you've got a preceptor, and uh, well, things go on, don't they? You spend a lot of time. He was spending 24-7 with 
uh, Jagdish Keshap in, this, in um, Benares University in his little digs that he had there and things would happen and um, so Bhante would go along in the evening and say uh, sorry Bhantaji uh, I felt anger towards you today because you asked me to get you more tea whatever it was that's how it worked and then he'd be um, and then Kashyapji would respond to that and that's how it works uh, with this one-to-one -one confession and we, we, we have that sometimes in Triratna you can do that in Triratna you can confess to your your friend in that kind of way so that's another form of confession as well as this more formalized kind of confession but confession's not just confined to monks or nuns um, and even in the Buddhist time this was the case there's a great example of course of King Ajata Satru who was you know a very very wealthy king uh, of his kingdom Magadha and of course he got there he got to become the king by murdering his father not only that he was a lot worse than that actually he'd uh, he tortured his father as well before he killed him he spent a long time torturing him terrible stuff really really but as Bunty's pointed out it was not uncommon at that time that's the sort of thing that often went on um, sadly um, and that's how he got the kingship by doing away with his dad and of course that was alright for a while but then he was left feeling very very uneasy in his mind about it um, you know what he'd done was very weighty and he couldn't get any rest apparently he couldn't sleep very well and there was a particular full moon night where he was tossing and turning for hours and uh, you know he just thought I've got to do something about this so the story is that he saddled up he uh, got his horse out saddled up on his own and rode out into the forest where the Buddha was staying and um, went to see the Buddha of course who happened to be awake in the middle of the night and doing his practice or whatever and he went straight to the Buddha and he confessed his unskillful act the Buddha said what he'd done just unburdened it himself got it off his chest and um, the, the Buddha heard accepted his confession and then what the Buddha did he gave him a pithy Dharma teaching he gave him you know okay this guy's confessed fantastic he gave him a really really one of those pithy to the heart Dharma teachings and um, the, the Ajata Satru was not receptive enough it seems um, had he been receptive the Buddha said afterwards then he would have attained insight on the spot with that kind of teaching that he gave him under those circumstances but because he had actually committed such a serious offence unfortunately he didn't on that occasion so that's interesting isn't it most of us will not have committed such a, an unskillful act as that um, but no doubt we've also felt unease in our lives at things that we've done in our lives I certainly have I've done some unskillful things and um, I can't sleep sometimes when that's happened I haven't been able to it's weighed on my on my mind there's something about um, three o'clock in the morning I don't know what it is about three o'clock in the morning it's a particular kind of time but that's when things that are done have got me and I think well I've got to I've got to deal with this so Buddhism has its tradition its long tradition of confession 
And Mahayana Buddhism also has its tradition of confession as well. And the Sutra of Golden Light is very much part of this tradition. Um, particularly beautiful verses of confession um, are often chanted as a devotional practice within puja. So we've got our puja, we've got our confession of faults, uh, you know, which was composed by Shantideva. So we're, we're carrying on that Mahayana tradition of confession as a devotional verse within puja. And these verses can be particularly beautiful and elaborate. And the verses of the confession section in the Sutra of Golden Light are outstanding in their beauty and comprehensiveness on the subject of confession. Um, so in chapter three of the Sutra, these verses are spoken by a golden drum, a golden drum, these verses. So we, this is the nucleus of the Sutra of Golden Light. The spiritual nucleus that the whole sutra is built around. It's a very beautiful and profound chapter and it's deeply influenced tree Ratna culture and practice. So in the last chapter, you might remember, we left Rutra Ketu with his problem of the length of life of the Buddha. And then of course his house expanded, his consciousness expanded, he moved on to another level where there wasn't a problem. He saw the Buddha in a different kind of way. Now in the beginning of chapter three, entitled the chapter on confession, he finds himself asleep. Rudra Keta has now gone to sleep, but it's not just the ordinary sleep of the tired, the kind of sleep that I got last night. It's not that kind of sleep. It's the sleep of, um, it's, it's the sleep of another level of reality. It's the sleep of spiritual death. And during that sleep, he had a dream. He had another one of those dreams. And after that dream was over, he awoke and he sought out the Buddha who was dwelling on Mount Gridrakutu. And after he'd made his respectful gestures, he sat down at one, one side, the sutra tells us, and related the dream to the Buddha. And here's some of what he said to the Buddha. During the night, I dreamed but was still alert. I saw a drum shredding brilliant golden light everywhere. It shone everywhere like a flaming sun. Shredding, shedding its light in the 10 directions, I saw Buddhas everywhere. They were sitting at the feet of jeweled trees on thrones made of lapis lazuli, surrounded by assemblies numbering many hundreds of thousands. I saw someone who looked like a Brahmin beating the drum. While he was striking it, these verses could be heard. By the drum of supreme golden light, may suffering be relieved in the billion worlds. The suffering of the lower states of existence, the suffering of the realm of Yama, and the suffering of poverty in this world. By the sound of this drum, May all misfortune in the world be relieved. May the hearts of living beings everywhere be uninjured, like those of the great fearless sages who have pacified their fear. May sentient beings become oceans of good qualities, attaining the good qualities of samadhi and of the seven factors of awakening. 
just like the great sages who knew everything about samsara and who attained every good and noble quality. By the sound of this drum, may all beings have the voice of Brahma. May they obtain the ultimate and highest awakening of Buddhahood and set the wheel of the pure Dharma in motion. So this is how the whole extraordinary chapter three on confession starts off. It starts with Ruchraketu dreaming of a Brahmin beating a drum, a drum of supreme golden light with verses of confession and devotion to and worship of the Buddha pouring out of the golden drum. Boom, 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 coming from the golden drum. <coughs> we can't know why Ritraketu dreams of a drum. Uh, after all, we're, we're dealing with a dream. And um, so we don't know why it's a drum. One of the Buddhas uh, is Dandibhishra, whose name means Lord of the Drum. And the Buddha himself proclaimed he would beat the drum of the deathless, the drum of Nirvana, the drum of the absolute. So like all true symbols, a drum will have lots and lots of meanings. So as I, here's a little story for you. As I said before, I've been reading this Sutra daily for 33 years. Whenever I read this passage about the Brahmin beating the drum, for most of that time, for some strange reason, I've always seen it, my imagination sees the drum as a little snare drum, a tiny little snare drum. And um, I don't know why that's happened, really. And um, I had a bit of a shock, really, because for some reason I thought it was like Drake's drum, you know, the historical drum that Sir Francis Drake is supposed to start beating whenever England is in danger from uh, the Armada or the French or the Dutch or whoever it was, this drum is said to start beating. It does exist, this drum. I believe it's in Westminster Abbey now, but I saw a replica of it a few years ago in Buckland Abbey in Devon, which was um, Drake's country seat. I saw a replica of it and I thought, is, is that it? Is that all it is? That little squidgy little, what? That's pathetic. <laughs> And since then, my unconscious seems to have completely um, changed that and replaced it with an enormous Japanese, one of those really big Japanese drums. And uh, I think that's more appropriate, actually. And in fact, Bhante himself says that in the seminar. He thinks we should see it in terms of an enormous suspended kettle drum, you know, the Japanese type variety, the ones that where they go boom, boom, boom you know that to, to it's in in zen buddhism they often use them don't they as part of rituals but also to call call the monks to the zendo it's not like a little school bell like we've sort of got here they've got a really big drum with some beefy bloke really kind of hitting it you know and uh, giving it everything well i think that's probably how we really need to see uh the drum in the sutra of golden light so the drum is the absolute, the truth, ultimate reality. It's circular in shape, representing perfection. And it's made of gold and it radiates golden light everywhere. Gold is the color of incorruptibility, 
um, immortality and eternity. The drum is also the Buddha, the historical Buddha who pro proclaims the Dharma. It's also the eternal Buddha of the Mahayana, who is the son of the spiritual universe. The drum is the Buddha who occupies the center of the spiritual universe. The drum is the Buddha who occupies the center of the five Buddha mandala. The drum is also Rutra Ketu, who is in the process of being completely transformed. The drum is also the sun, with all its rich solar imagery of ancient Indian times. And finally, the drum is the Sutra of Golden Light itself, Suvana Bhashotama, especially the nucleus of the Sutra, the, the verses of confession. So there are other symbols in Rutra Ketu's dream. There are actually too many to go into here. You could do a month of retreats on um, the symbolism of the Sutra of Golden Light. But, you know, we've got this amount of time. One of the, the symbols is the Brahmin beating the drum. And Brahmin, in this context, don't think Hindu you know, upper caste person, don't think that. Brahmin was a the original name um, of an ancient Indian priest or shaman of the invading Aryan tribes. And he's timeless. He's actually a timeless character, which suggests that the dream is outside of time. It's not occurring in time, which I think we already knew. <coughs> but the important thing about it is he's actually doing something is actually lifting up the hammer, wielding it, and whacking the drum with it. He's a spiritual devotee taking the initiative. He gathers his strength, lifts the hammer, and he strikes. He beats on the absolute. And there's a response. The drum speaks. Reality speaks. The confessional verses come forth in a blaze of golden light. As the verses pour forth, they can be, be divided into ten sections. I'm just going to take my jumper off for this. So verses come forth as he beats them. Oh. Yeah. Quite know where I put that now. Sorry, just talk amongst yourselves for a minute if you want to. So the verses that forth pour, pour forth as he beats the drum are firstly, a prayer for the complete transformation of self and world. Secondly, the drum is speaking as Rutra Ketu, uh, as Rutra Ketu himself, who's taking the Bodhisattva vow. Thirdly, there's a lengthy confession of faults. Fourthly, a promise to worship the Buddhas in the Ten Directions. Fifthly, a second confession of faults. Sixthly, a rejoicing in merits of all beings who perform skillful actions. Seventhly, another very good short confession of faults. Eighthly, in praise of the Bodhisattvas, very much in solar imagery. 
And ninthly, more aspirations, good wishes, and rejoicing is in merits. Tenthly, it describes the advantages of worshipping the Buddha by means of these verses of confession. So what does all this mean? What we really have here, Bhante suggests, is a rudimentary but very beautiful sevenfold puja. That's what we have. We have a sevenfold puja there. So chapter three of the Sutra Golden Light is in a way the king of confessional verses. Yeah, it's the best. Um, it's really profound, profoundly influenced confessional practice within Tri Ratna. That's where it all comes from. It's beautiful, eloquent, very, very thorough and effective. And to be able to confess this deeply and effectively within the context of the golden light is to really get to the heart of the Bodhisattva ideal. So that's what happened in Rutra case. He's made himself receptive to the golden light so that golden light begins to work through him. He becomes a real Bodhisattva. A real Bodhisattva practices the six perfections, generosity, ethics, patience, energy, meditation, and wisdom. And he works on himself and he does his best to influence others. Unfortunately, in doing this, he encounters obstacles within himself. He becomes aware of his many weaknesses and faults, unskillful tendencies. What can a Bodhisattva do under those circumstances? Well, he can confess his faults and purify himself. In Ruchiketa's case, it takes the form of the confessional verses in chapter 3. In our own case, we have that verse in the puja, taken from Shantideva's Bodhicharivatara. The evil that I've heaped up through my ignorance and foolishness, evil in the world of everyday experience, as well as evil in understanding and intelligence, all that I acknowledge to the protectors. Standing before them, with hands raised in reverence and terrified of suffering, I pay salutations again and again. May the leaders receive this kindly, just as it is with its many faults. What is not good, O protectors, I shall not do again. One of the um, challenges to practicing puja is that your mind goes on to uh, autopilot. So that might have just happened to you then. Soon as I started chanting, um, reciting the confessional verse there, you might have just, oh yeah, that's the one in the puja, isn't it? I know that really well. And I, I, I do this myself. But it's really good in puja sometimes when you really know something really well to have a really good look at it. You may not have really ever reflected on it. <laughs> you know, really taken it in and what it really is. It's a wonderful uh, practice in itself in the sevenfold puja. And we do it every night on retreat. It's a wonderful thing. I think I can remember the exact place and time that I first participated in a sevenfold puja in Sri Ratna. It was in Dis Health Centre in January the 10th, 1984. And it was led by Sabuti, who was leading a little uh, Tri Ratna group in Dis Health Centre at the time, which is where I was going. And um, I used to get a train from Ipswich to Dis Health Centre because there was no classes in Ipswich at all. And it was 19, it just turned 1984. 
and everybody was talking about George Orwell in 1984 and, uh, all the, and George Orwell was everywhere in the media. There was no internet then but there was still media and um, some of you might find that hard to believe but there was <laughs> and it was, it was everywhere. I remember my wife at the time, I remember saying to her whenever I went to Padma Loka, I, I used to say to her, I'm going to visit the Ministry of Truth. <laughs> it was our little joke, the Ministry of Truth. <laughs> anyway, I loved the puja. So this was the first sevenfold puja. I'd only done the threefold puja before then. But when we got to the confessional verses, confessional faults, and I heard this word evil, as soon as I heard that word evil, I thought, oh no, oh God, no. Not all that guilt stuff again, oh no. And it took me right back to Sunday school where we had a fundamentalist Christian minister who was really, really good on, on guilt. Um, I grew up in the uh, Church of England, which I thought was really, really hard stuff, really. But I've since come to realise it was incredibly mild, actually. But I had a, quite a big, a lot of difficulty with the Church of England. I had to go. My parents insisted I went to church on Sunday. So I was, I was a choir boy. I was in the choir. I sang. And um, I only really joined because Miss Forbes was leading it. And, you know, I had a bit of a thing about Miss Forbes. But um, I've, I've confessed that years ago. And, uh, and I even got confirmed by the Bishop of Carlisle, whose name was Cyril. I do know that. Uh, I don't know how I know it. We retain this useless information, don't we? And I went to church every Sunday. Uh, we went to church every, as, a, as a family, and I grew to hate it. I particularly hated the Bible, and especially the Old Testament with all its guilt trip language and how all evil and sinful we all were. Um, and then when I got to the age of 13, I rebelled. I remember telling my brother and my parents that I didn't believe in God and I wasn't going to go to church anymore. Notice I used the term wasn't going. It was as simple as that. Now, unfortunately, I grew up in a violent household and I had to really make it very clear to my parents that I wasn't, because my father was very, very angry, and I knew that I would have got a beating. So what I did was we would go to um, a morning service, 10 o'clock on a Sunday, and I left the house at 9 and ran off into the wood, and they couldn't find me. And I did this four times in a row, and, um, and surprisingly, my parents just, just gave up. They just... They just accepted it after a month that I really wasn't a Christian and I wasn't ever going to go again. And they just, they actually accepted it. And then a year later, to everyone's surprise, I converted to Buddhism. So it's, I mean, I tell you this story and it seems unbelievable, but it really was like that. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But years, many, many years after I rejected the church and all that stuff, um, not that it's all about that, of course, but they do seem to specialise, Christianity does seem to specialise in, in, in sin and evil. Um, after that, I, I've met many Buddhists who've had all sorts of religious faith backgrounds, and some of it's been an awful lot more hardcore than what I experienced around this area. So I, I've got off quite lightly, I think.
But when I first heard the confession of faults, I thought, oh no, oh no, we're back in that kind of stuff again, are we? Uh, oh dear. But then quickly in the puja, rejoicing in merits followed, and that helped quite a lot. And of course, I soon grew to realize that our approach to ethics is nuanced in Buddhism and intelligent, and very much about actions of body, speech, and mind, the, the ethics of intelligence and intention. It was a very, very different approach to the biblical one. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas don't get upset with us and decide to mete out punishment, um, guilt, and condemnation. I later came to know that Dharma friends, you know, had had a much tougher time of it than me. Um, so, yes, guilt. What is guilt then in this context? Because I certainly got you know, guilt trips. Well, Bhante tells us it, it, it consists of three things. Firstly, consciousness of having done wrong or offended against the group. That's the first thing, that's the first component of guilt in this context. Secondly, fear of being found out or being punished. Yeah, I certainly got that. And thirdly, the person who doesn't want you to do something is someone that you're attached to in some way. Yeah, so I had all, the, all those three going on in my life. So no wonder I uh, rebelled. But that is not at all what confession is about in Buddhism. I will repeat that. That is not at all what confession is about in Buddhism. Not at all. Yeah, it's not the same as confession in other religions. It's not the same as confession in psychology. If you go and see a therapist, it's not the same as confession in that context. And it's definitely not the same as confessing in a police interview room. Yeah, it's not the same as that at all. <laughs> Some of us may have been there, I don't know. <laughs> It's a very different practice in a very different context. It's a deeply positive spiritual practice. You are like the Brahmin beating the drum. You're doing something creative, yeah? You're taking responsibility for your ethical life within the context of the three jewels and the five, or in the case of order members, 10 precepts. So sadhu, sadhu, you're actually doing something. And the effects of confession are very positive. You feel relieved of any burden. You feel cleansed and purified. You're back on the path. Uh, it often feels natural to rejoice in, in the merits of aspects of the Dharma uh, after you've confessed. You feel gratitude to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and you rejoice in the happiness of others. You're able to experience mudita, which is a lovely emotion. The word for confession in Sanskrit, by the way, is desana. And papadesana, you'll come across this term, means acknowledgement of faults. So when we come into contact with the golden light, it does reveal our impurities. Impurities of body, speech and mind. Particularly, it's focused on breaches of the five ethical precepts, or, or the ten precepts. I don't need to go into these here very much. We know what I'm talking about, yeah? About harming living beings taking the not given, sexual misbehaviour, uh, not being truthful in your speech, 
and unmindfulness we know about these. Uh, and that's enough for most of us for the rest of our lives. That will just take us all the way to enlightenment. We don't really need anything else. It's a fantastic system that's deeply, deeply effective. If you take it really seriously, it's deeply effective. So contact with the golden light of the Dharma encourages us to raise our ethical game and develop greater metta in our deeds, greater contentment, greater honesty and generosity, greater truth, truthfulness and greater mindfulness in all matters. That's what the golden light is inspiring us to do. But a question arises, what can we do if we fall short? Well, we can confess. To confess is to make a, is to make a move towards being a true individual. So who's the confession made to? Well, to other individuals in the Sangha, to appropriate individuals. It could be close friends, it could be Kalyanamitras or preceptors or other order members or teachers, but they need to be mature people. They need to be people who can really hear you and hear what you've done. They can receive that confession in its proper spiritual context. It won't work, it will just be waste, a waste of time if you choose the, an inappropriate person. It needs to be someone you can have real communication with. And as Sanganista was saying earlier, someone you can trust. What do we confess? Yeah? Anything of an unskillful nature that you feel is holding you back from going deeper into the golden light. When do we confess? As soon as possible, as soon as you're aware. Just find the right time and place. I recently confessed something I did 42 years ago, uh, but it came up, it came up in my practice. It's a long time, but you can always confess things from the past. I felt I needed to do that in my chapter, something silly that I'd done, and up it came so, and I dealt with it. So, but if you can do it, you know, fairly quickly, that's good. So if you have a row with your wife or something, and tell her that, you know, call her something horrible, you know, give it a few minutes and then go back and say, look, I'm really sorry about that. And, and you can confess it in your going for refuge group or within your friends in the Sangha later on. Just get, get on the case, you know, deal with it as soon as it comes up. Um, what does one confess? Sorry, when does one confess? As soon as possible. And also without guilt, without guilt. Yeah, try to leave that aside. Guilt's got no spiritual value in Buddhism. It was funny, in my old days of the Church of England, I used to feel guilty about things I hadn't done at all. There was just this atmosphere that somehow I must have done something bad, and, um, and I hadn't actually done them, you know, but I still used to feel bad about it. I used to feel bad about things my brother had done. He didn't seem to for some reason, which was probably healthy. <laughs> so genuine confessing in Buddhism is always positive. Buddhas and bodhisattvas don't get upset with you and punish you. However, you do suffer the karmic consequences of what you've done. We can't avoid that. So in the case of Ajata Satru, you know, he had actually killed his father. Um, and there should be a good effect on the confessor and a clear resolve not to repeat the behaviour. And the bodhisattva... Um, Vajrasattva is, the, or is really a Buddha, actually, of primordial purity. And he represents the peak of purification. So you might have come across his mantra, 
and there's particularly there's this hundred syllable mantra I'm not going to chant it now but um, it would take too long but it's particularly associated with post-confession so you've confessed you can chant the hundred syllable mantra and um, to really let go and cleanse things in fact you, you don't have to do it in a formal setting you can do it anywhere you like um, as long as you can remember the whole thing so what's the difference between guilt and remorse guilt is negative and remorse this Buddhist word is positive you might ask because they can seem quite similar um, the main difference is guilt is associated with despair and emotional dependence it's an unskillful emotion that feels bad. Yeah, it's, un it's actually not a good emotion at all, and it feels bad. Um, you need the love and approval of others, so that just complicates everything. Uh, and this state often arises out of when individuals feel unworthy, yeah, which is a very sad condition, um, but probably very common. And that's where your metabhavna comes in on your first stage of the metapavna, on your friendships within the Sangha. Remorse is quite different. It, remorse also feels unpleasant. It definitely feels unpleasant, but it's actually very positive. So it's an example of a positive mental state that feel, doesn't feel very nice, but it is still very positive. And it's associated with not living up to your best intentions, your ideals what you really want to do. You've let yourself down in some way and you see that, you see the effect of that. So there's two terms associated with remorse. Uh, the first one is khri, khri, you'll come across this term which means shame and that's self-regarding. So khri is self-regarding, so you've let yourself down, you've seen that, you've kicked that dog, you've, you've used bad language, you've become very reactive, whatever it is and you think, oh no. No one saw what I did, but I know I've done it and I don't feel good about it. So that's the first term. The second term is apatrapia, uh, which, which is other regarding. So you still feel shame, decorum around that, but it's associated with you've let other people down. You've let the sangha down. Your reputation within the sangha is you've become untrustworthy or... It, it, it's shame in association with others. So they're quite two. They're actually positive mental states, but they don't feel very good. Um, so that's, that's kind of interesting to go in. Perhaps they could be areas that we could talk about in the study this afternoon. It's interesting that uh, Lama Govinda, who was a friend of Bhante's and a great Buddhist teacher, he associates Khri and Apatrapya with the Buddha Amitabha. You know, the Buddha of boundless light and love. So it's very interesting that that kind of connection. He said that's very much Amitabha's realm. So feeling unworthy is an all too common experience for people when they, um, when they haven't got a foundation of metta in their lives. So that's why we work so um, strongly with metta bhavana and mindfulness of breathing with shamatha meditations. Um, at this early stage of our spiritual lives and right the way through the whole of our spiritual life to the end of the path we'll be using those practices because they're so important I work quite a lot in uh, Calcutta and um, they've got a movement there called Goenka Goenka's movement and they teach um, insight practices to beginners 
and you know, it's, I found it useless talking to their teachers about this, but they, they say, well, you don't really need mesobarbinary in mindfulness of breathing. And I've just sort of given up sort of talking to them about it, really. Uh, but I think it's part of Bante's genius is that he saw that very, very clearly. And his teachers all taught that. So it's not a straightforward task for many Buddhists, I realise. Um, you know, having this strong foundation of self-esteem. But all the activities and all the conditions in Triratna are there present for you to develop that in your life. Okay, coming back to confession, I'd like to suggest that there are five levels of confession. So I'm moving towards the end now. Um, the first level of confession I'd call uh, the ethnic or cultural confession. So I think this is kind of really, we're talking about politeness here. So that's where it's like, I'm sorry if madam is upset at the service that you've received in this retail establishment, and we shall hope to rectify the situation as soon as possible. Yeah, that's kind of ethnic confession, really. That's where you say, okay, there's been a problem, we'll try and put it right for you. But it's not very deep. There isn't much behind it. The second level is what you might call provisional confession. And that's where you acknowledge, okay, I've, I've definitely upset this person. I've hurt them or caused them some harm in some way. Uh, okay. And um, so you at least you see it. You're willing to see that you've got things a bit wrong and you've acted unskillfully. But there's no apology and there's no remorse. And I think a brilliant example of this was Prime Minister David Cameron visiting the site of the Amritsar massacre uh, in Amritsar, the uh, Jalawala Bagh massacre, which happened 100 years ago, and uh, where 400 innocent adults and 41 children were uh, mowed down under the machine gun fire of the infamous General Dyer. And um, the incident so shocked the Asian Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore at the time that he returned his knighthood to King George V. It was truly shameful what the British did at that time for no real reason. It was a peaceful demonstration. And um, well, David Cameron went, back, went there a few years ago and he sort of, sort of said, yes, it's terrible, isn't it, and all that. But there was no apology or confession or real acknowledgement of what the British Raj had done at that time. And um, that's what we, we call the level of provisional confession. You acknowledge, yeah, okay, something's gone on here. I can see you're upset, you know, I can see you're upset. But that's as far as it goes. Effective confession is the next level. And that's, well, effective. That's what hopefully regularly goes on in going for refuge groups, in chapter meetings, uh, between preceptees and preceptors and with close spiritual friends. The confession is general and the apology is specific and that's where you follow through, is the apology. So making the confession itself is, is a good start. You've got to apologize and follow through and say, look, I want to make this right with you. The fourth level is real confession, real confession. And that really means insight. It means irreversibility, it means stream entry. It means that it would be simply impossible for you to knowingly act unskillfully. And if you did and you knew it, you'd immediately want to put it right. 
straight away. It'd be impossible for you to just brush it off. You just couldn't do it. It wouldn't be in your nature. Um, you don't just take responsibility for your intention. You take responsibility for the results as well. You know, um, you're really, really following through with your ethical behaviour with real confessions. That's probably insight. And the fifth le level is absolute confession, which of course would be enlightenment. And we can't really say very much about that. So all this talk, reflection and practice of confession is inspired by many Buddhists by chapter three of the Sutra of Golden Light. And we'll sh we shall hear some of that from our excellent translation uh, from Shraddhapa tonight. And the chapter is pointing up a really valuable spiritual practice, which is actually an essential practice, together with all the other excellent practices that we do in Tri Ratna. It purifies us, helps us to be individuals, and helps us to move forward in the Dharma, in our knowledge of ourselves and our, and our deepening of our practice. Having said all that, all that good stuff, I'd like to add in a final point which is quite nuanced and a little bit from the left field even. Uh, what I've said is all standard stuff and good stuff, but I'd just like to sort of throw something a little bit different in right at the end here. When the golden light enters us, we're transformed and our areas that hold us back get revealed. Okay, so far so good. Well, my point is that in our spiritual lives, and hopefully they'll be the whole of our lives, um, sometimes, unwittingly perhaps, we just get things wrong. We make mistakes, we goof up, yeah? We get taken over by enthusiasm. Uh, we go off on one, as it said. Yeah, we get a hold of the wrong end of the stick. Um, in my involvement in Tri Ratna, which is, you know, a long time now, 30-odd years, uh, 37 years or something, um, there's always been uh, fashions, there's always been trends, there's always been some new thing that's coming in which everyone is into. There's a book or a particular practice. We have all these fads, don't we, in Tri Ratna. They're always washing through from shamanic journeying through to, I don't know, what's the current one? What is the latest? I don't know what it is. Um, anyway, whatever, they, they, there's always something, isn't there? But, sorry? 10, what? All oh, right, okay. There's always something, and people get taken away for a while. Sometimes they add something to our movement, sometimes they're a dead end. And individuals go in their own personal little fashions and trends and they just get stuff wrong. And when we do this, it's not necessarily unskillful. We might simply be misguided. We might be a bit foolish, actually. And it happens all the time. It's happened to me twice, twice in my life. But I'd like to give you an example of where that can happen. And I'll give you an example from Buddhist his history, and I'll, I'll end on this. Um, some of you may have heard of the great Chan master, Zhu Yong, uh, sometimes known as Empty Cloud. And whenever you talk about Chinese Buddhism in the modern times, the 19th and 20th century, his name will just come to the top. He's the most famous, respected, 
and prominent and enlightened teacher in Chinese Buddhism in, in probably two centuries. He's an extraordinary figure, extraordinary Chinese Buddhist. He died in 1959, aged 119. He said towards the end of his life that he would have lived a lot longer, but he was beaten up very badly by Chinese communist guards with iron bars when he was 99, I think. And they broke all his bones and stuff. And he, never, he said he never really recovered from that. So he's, but he would have lived a lot longer than that, he thought. Um, when he was in his early 90s, he was still physically laboring in monasteries, rebuilding monasteries that had fallen down. He lived and practiced through the great opium wars, the Manchu dynasty, dynasty and latterly communist China. He literally walked thousands of miles across rural China, um, literally. He basically just rebuilt monasteries. There were all these monasteries that had fallen into ruin or there were only a few monks. And he would just walk to one, set up, stay there for a few years, inspire everybody, raise funds, literally rebuild the monastery, recruit new people, and then he'd leave it in this fantastic condition. And then he'd go off and and find another one. He did that throughout his life. Um, he's widely regarded as a living bodhisattva. He retrieved Chinese Buddhism from a period of decline. Unfortunately, when he was a young man, his father was hostile to Buddhism. He wanted him to practice Taoism. And so Zhu Yun really wanted to practice the Dharma, so he ran away from home at the age of 19 to a monastery, he got ordained, but then he quickly left the monastery. Once he got his robe, he quickly left the monastery and went out into the wilderness and lived in the wilderness on his own for 10 years. And he wanted to let go of all attachment. He wanted to go straight to enlightenment. And the way to do that was to let go of everything that he was attached to. Uh, he kept a diary all the way through his life. So we know this, he's written it all out very thoroughly in his diary, and that's published. When he reached the age of 31, his 31st year, after 10 years in the wilderness, he realized he wasn't making any progress. He was living off berries. He had a thin shirt and a pair of trousers, a pair of underpants, and this is like in serious winter in uh, China, because he, he didn't want to be attached to the elements. He just gathered his food. If he fell ill, he just let himself be ill. He lived in caves. It was extraordinary how he was trying to practice. And he was doing this. But after he got to his 31st year of 10 years of doing this, I mean, really hardcore austerity, he thought, I'm not getting anywhere. Meditation's not really taking off. So he walked into a local temple, which was quite famous at the time, called Long Quan Temple. And he presented himself to the Dharma master, Yang Jin, who was 85 years of age and very, very eminent. And it's worth knowing that he had the same shirt, pants and trousers for 10 years. <laughs> By that time, the shirt was still on his back, but not only just about. But his trousers had completely gone. And his underpants, you know, whatever they wore then, had also gone. 
So imagine the spectacle of a guy walking into a temple with no pants on, completely naked from the bottom downwards, like this. And this is what the account tells us. And so he was, he was asking to see Dharma Master, and uh, they sort of looked at him and said, all right. <laughs> so he sat him down, brought him some tea, and he said, look, who are, who are you? Are you? Are you a monk? Are you a layperson? Oh, I am a monk, I'm a monk. And he looked at him and he said, why are you in this condition? Why are you like this? Look at the state of you. Why are you like this? What's your practice? So Empty Cloud spent a lot of time explaining to him, you know, his practice, how he's trying to let go of attachment and experience shunita and all the rest of it. And uh, Yang Chin called for some food. They said, right, some food. Got him some trousers, all the rest of it. <laughs> and um, he said, look, he said, you've completely wasted 10 years of your life. You've got absolutely nowhere. In fact, if you carry on the way you are, there's a particular hell realm, and he explained and he described it that you will end up in. That's where you'll go. And empty um, cloud sort of dropped his head, let go of his pride. I said, "Okay, okay, that's yeah, all right then." So he got him a job in the monastery, sweeping it out, cleaning, gardening. He had him doing regular morning meditation with the rest of the monks. He said, "You need a bit of spiritual friendship." You need some puja. You actually need a standard meditation. You need a job to do. You need a bed to sleep in. You need all these things. You need a regular lifestyle. You said you'll make progress. And it says in his diary that he attained enlightenment, full enlightenment, at the age of 46. The rest of his life seems to have borne that out, actually, that um, he attained full enlightenment. Uh, the way that he operated after that was nothing short of extraordinary. But he often says that that was the most important day of his life, was when he realised his mistake, rectified it, got help, and moved forward. So I think Zhu Young's story... Oh, by the way, I've got a photograph of him when he was 112. And I think he looks quite good for someone who is 112. There he was aged 112 and um, it just seems to have spent the whole of his life working for the benefit of others working for Buddhism after that extraordinary individual so what's crucial about in Zhu Young's case was he realized that he was getting nowhere that he'd gone <coughs> off on one and he sought advice from someone he respected someone who could help him out of the mess and this is what we need to do as well if we get into these kind of straits ourselves. These false paths, there are many false paths that we can follow. Uh, they may not involve actual unskillfulness in themselves. However, what happens is the ego and pride can get in the way. You find it hard to admit to yourself. You find it hard to admit to others that you've, you've got it wrong just like the Buddha got it wrong with his austerities. But he saw that. It's painful to admit, isn't it, when you're deluding yourself. I've certainly experienced that. I just think, oh, it's painful. I've been treading a false path. But if you're able to recognize your error, let go of your pride and ego, get some guidance, you can make great progress, which obviously happened in the case of empty cloud. If you're not able to let go, 
then some real harm can come to you and, uh, and possibly to other people as well. So confession would be an appropriate practice uh, in the case of someone who does recognise their error. And then you can move forward on the path happily, energetically, steadily, skillfully and creatively. If you do that and continue to do that, then the spiritual significance of confession will have been fully realised. So I'd like to finish with a short poem by Empty Cloud. Um, despite working like a Trojan for the Dharma all his life, he loved to go on solitary retreat. And it seems that when he was on solitary retreat, he never really did anything very much. He just reflected and bathed in the benefits of being on solitary retreat. He meditated and cooked his food, and that was about all he did. But he, set, he wrote some truly beautiful poetry. And they always have this sort of they set up the poems, they set up the conditions, and then you've got this final line, which is the payoff of the poem. Wonderful stuff. Anyway, I'll read you a couple, and that's it, I'm finished. Here we go. This is from Six Poems on Mountain Life. I've got a little picture in my mind of a clean and quiet place. Everywhere you look, it's completely natural. The house is made of plaited rushes. There's a good half acre for growing tubers and flowers. Beautiful birds perch on cliffs that encase a few clouds that hang around green peaks. The world's red dust won't be able to get up here. Simple elegance is better than saintliness or spirituality. Can joy be found in the mountains? Let me tell you, there's more joy in the mountains than anywhere else. Pines and bamboos perform sacred chants. The songs of sheng flutes are played by birds. In the ponds, ducks cavort with lotus lilies. This escape from the ordinary world, month by month, year by year, eliminates the hindrances to enlightenment. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 